Hey, everybody. Welcome to Episode 5 of Season 2 of The Narrative Podcast. I'm excited to have my friend Eric Schneider join me for what I hope you'll agree is a really interesting conversation. The Narrative was created to bring interesting people to you who you may not have heard from before, with the common thread of those people being great storytellers. Eric is a great storyteller and uses interesting mediums to tell his stories, some of which won't translate to an audio format. So when you're done listening, go check out Eric's blog at Eric Schneider, S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R-R dot WordPress dot com or look him up on LinkedIn. Eric's currently a consultant in enterprise software and advises executives in using data to bring their customer strategy to life. He started his career in mechanical engineering, shifted to training and selling engineering software, and continued building his career by continual learning and following his interests. That took him to e-commerce, Salesforce automation, marketing technology, analytics, and more. Along the way, Eric built an approach to sketching and writing, which helps him think, understand problems, and engage others in solving them. Eric lives in Atlanta with his wife, his two sons, and his dog. For fun, he enjoys biking, reading, and cooking. In fact, if you want to gain five pounds by proxy, just go look at the cooking photos on Eric's Instagram. Eric's fascinating. I think you'll enjoy meeting him. Eric, thanks for joining me on The Narrative. I'm uh, excited to have you on. I know we, at one point, talked about you being guest number one. You were going to be my, my guinea pig guest, and you offered to do that way back when. And Yeah, I'm excited to be here. It's, it's been an interesting thing to, uh, to listen to as you've evolved it from where it was and where you thought it might be before you had your first guest on who I've actually been in a meeting with several years before that, um, which is just a small world thing. But yeah, it's great to be here, Jeff. It has evolved a little bit. And it's interesting because the evolution has happened. You know, as I've said before, the thing that fascinates me, the thing that got me to want to do the podcast in the first place was the idea of storytelling. And the fact that there are people out there who are really good storytellers um, and there's people out there who are really bad at storytelling. You know, I've spent a lot of time training salespeople and working with other marketing people and other people in my career. And I just, you can, you know, there are people who are good at storytelling and people who aren't good at it and trying to sift through and help the people who may not be as good at it, hear from people who are good at it. And I think it's not so much just the saying, oh, I'm just going to become a storyteller. I think you have to have a backstory, a depth to your ability to then take things and turn concepts into something. And, um, you know, we've talked about this briefly before, but never in a, in a forum like this, the, the way that you utilize art, even though you're not an artist, I mean, I guess, you know, any art is art, but you're not like a trained artist who uses through a prism to tell stories has always been interesting to me. So can you kind of talk through like your background and then we can pivot through what you do and then we can go off onto that direction? Yeah, and I can add an element of where the either the art has come in or the storytelling has come in throughout the whole thing. But yeah, you're right. I'm I'm reasonably unique, and the reason that I'm unique is because of really this philosophy. I mean, it certainly didn't start when I was a teenager, and certainly didn't start at my first job. But eventually, is telling your own story, and that's what you're 
your life and your career and your relationships are about is telling, arriving at that story and telling it in the moment. So when I was growing up, uh, my dad loved cars. I loved cars. I was always good at math and science and I wanted to be an engineer. So I wanted to do design work and I, you know, went to, went, got my undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering, did what I call either the dumbest smart thing I've ever done or the smartest dumb thing I've ever done. I'd co-opt in undergrad, which was not the dumb thing. It was a smart thing because it showed me what to do or not do. But I met my wife in college and she was an engineer. We had like this, this point, I was six months behind where she was because I'd co-opt and I wanted to catch up to her. So the economy wasn't great. And I got my master's degree at Georgia Tech in 12 months, which was really ludicrous. It was just, it was not a good decision, but I it was a great decision. can't even comprehend it. No, um, but we've been married nearly 30 years now. So that was, that was the best decision I've ever made, putting it that way. Um, somewhere in there, I went from designing and doing some pretty tough stuff. I worked for a pharmaceutical packaging and filling equipment company. We designed all these machines that would pick up vials, put them on a conveyor belt, fill them up, put stoppers in them, that kind of thing. And the company was run by an old Swiss guy and everything was meant to be cam driven, right? Every bit of motion in this had to be picked up, timed. You have to time the filling nozzle, filling into a vial, and have it all flowing down the line, pick it up and then do the next things. And they had no way to design the camps, which meant nothing could possibly work. And since I had the most recent, you know, mathematical and engineering degree, um, I did it and I started doing it with, uh, with spreadsheets. And we had a machine which apparently wasn't working well in I think Philadelphia basically it was beating itself to death because it would just stop and start and stop and start. And nothing was smooth. The company got upset. They shipped it back to us and I fixed it and it was great. Um, but we had loads and loads of, of machines to go through and I needed something to scale. And in the process of that, I got to buy for myself some really, really expensive software. And in the process of doing that, I got to tell people who are trying to sell the software. Again, it was not, not inexpensive software, tens of thousands of dollars. Explain it. It was very graphical because we're trying to describe how machines move and then, you know, solve it. And I got on with my job from there, but I thought that's an interesting job. They're looking at me trying to understand where I'm at and clarify what they can do to help me solve a problem. And that turned out to be my next job. When I decided it was time to do something a little bit different, that was that just had an insane amount of freedom in my in my mind because it meant I wasn't locked into trying to solve the same problem over and over again. It means I would have an infinite number of things to solve mm -hmm. and stories to tell. So that's where it started. And that started off doing software and writing on a whiteboard and drawing drawing 3D shapes, putting bullets on a whiteboard and talking people through concepts knowing what you do now and, and, and I think a bit how you do it, that initial orientation of actually dealing with process flows and the way one element 
connects to another one and the timing aspects and that that chain of a supply chain, for lack of a better term, of processes mm -hmm. probably has been really, really valuable in being able to then go in and be consultative to people about how they're creating. It's They're creating a, a non-mechanical process, but they're still creating things that are very process-oriented. Right. And to, to fast forward a little bit from there, where I'm where I went next was still in the software industry, but went to the world of business. So I don't, a lot of your guests may have heard of CRM software. I'm sure a lot of them haven't, but anything that a salesperson would use to track their deals in process, their pipeline forecast of their bosses, what their sales quota is going to be and how they're going to meet it. Um, contact centers and call centers and how they take customer service. Um, obviously it's expanded, not just call center because nobody wants to wait for a call. They want to chat for service or, or go, if they're really upset, go on Twitter and gripe about something or also marketing and analytics all have to do with customer data and customer interaction. And that's where I went next to do basically the technical side of sales and just got more into databases, got into web design, web pages, more coding than I'd done in college, and started to weave stories around it because I got more fascinated, less oddly enough, with the technology side of it and the guts of how everything worked once I got to understand how that worked, but how that went into solving problems and how that worked into solving business problems because that's where it all came back to. You get an infinite set of variety when you're trying to tell a retailer or telecommunications company, healthcare company, banking, et cetera, how to go about solving what they needed to get done with technology. And then you learn how to weave a story around mm -hmm. it all. What are their challenges? How does that happen on a macro level at a business? How do they report on it, find the problems, improve the process? And then how do you go about getting there to the end zone as opposed to it just being you know, it's just a, a pie in the sky vision. And my, you know, my career that, which, you know, we've had, we've been in very similar parallel, you know, very adjacent industries for a long time. And, you know, that, that role, that role that you just described to me is like the, it's the secret sauce of successful software companies. You know, I, I, and not to take anything away from marketers like myself, not to take anything away from salespeople who have tough jobs. Um, mm -hmm. But the very best companies I've worked for at the very best salespeople I've worked with have been blessed to have people who are good at doing what you just described. Because at the end of the day, if I'm a CFO and you're trying to sell me financial software, I don't really care how the sausage is made. I have other people in my organization who care how the sausage is made. I need to know what your process, what your software is going to do to solve a business problem for me and how effective it can be. And if, you know, hopefully it provides me a benefit and it's not very expensive or it's a cost benefit analysis that tells me it's worth doing, that's narrative, that's storytelling much more than it is, you know, this widget connects to that widget and let me drop you down the drop down menu of 7,000 items and show you how I pick one from a pick list, which is the bad salespeople and the bad demo people and, and consultants, that's what they do. And I shouldn't say bad, the less successful ones is probably a better way of phrasing it. Yeah, for sure. That's it. Almost it ends in starts in a problem definition and it ends in what solving the problem means. Right. You've got to tie those together in some way in there. 
is what your solution does. And I, I, again, there's plenty of people who deal with the, the technology side of it or the process side of it. Um, there's IT, there's business. They work towards some kind of solution. And every time, you know, again, for the listeners who are not on, not in the technology business or haven't engaged in this, anytime you engage in a web page or you go to, you know, you go to brand X that you've seen an ad for and say, I really like those shoes or I really like that, uh, that shirt. I think I'm going to go ahead and buy it. And then how does that entire process work from your discovery of the product to doing some research on it, to engaging with a website or a store or what have you. And then that's just part of reality. And it's creating, it's creating trust really at the core of it. It's how do you create trust from the interaction of a business with its customers, or if you're dealing with a business as a customer, how do you build trust by understanding their problem, letting you know that and co-create? That's why it's, it's funny. I've got maybe two or three endorsements on LinkedIn. At some point I said, one of my skills is Inception. If you've seen the movie Inception, where you're trying to, you know, the, the end goal is to have somebody's idea be joint enough that it crystallizes in their mind. They pursue it. They think it's their own. Yeah. When in reality, it's something that you've helped them get to. Yeah. And when you're talking about sales or when you're talking about just conveying information, you need to be able to have that emotional connection and discovery and some vulnerability to it to be pointed in the right direction. And when somebody starts creating with you, then it becomes something that they're, they're buying into just along the way. Yeah. And you that's know, storytelling. Yeah. And you know, you, you, it's interesting because I just had this experience in the last couple of days where, um, like a lot of software, like a lot of solutions, you have to find a person who want, especially something that's early stage, something that isn't commoditized. You have to find a person who's willing to be take a risk and try something and be willing to be out on the tips of their skis for whatever reason. They're looking to advance their own career. They want to be the thought leader in their company. Maybe they're the visionary in the company already. And you know, th there's all those different reasons. You know, as, as companies prospect, I fear that sometimes they prospect assuming that everybody is like that. And so they'll go and throw a very disruptive message or you can change your business message at somebody who's not that way, who doesn't have that DNA. And they look and go, whoa, I don't want to change or I'm not the change agent here or whatever it would be. And you, you know, I tell people all the time, you have to dig deeper in an organization, potentially find the one who thinks the way you think or you, who are, or who you can do exactly what you just described with mind meld together to create a story that's really their story that you're then helping with and then let help them navigate it further upstream because especially in early stage things you know the use the term disruptive gets thrown around all the time not everybody is willing to be disruptive and even more not everybody knows how to be disruptive and i think it's one of those things that's it's it's just an interesting thing that you experience where people try to do this i think the a statement you made earlier about you know each scenario you were involved in, whether it was healthcare or retail, whichever industry, they were all greenfield. It was all a different way to approach it. The problem was the problems might be very similar, but the approach might be very different. And the tendency is to say, here's the pitch. 
Go show the pitch. Here's the demo. Go show the demo. Did it work? Nope. Okay, move to the next one. And I don't think it's the most, you know, and I try to tell people all the time, you got to be more consultative. And I think what you're describing is being really consultative. Yeah, it is. It's about building someone, not, not one size fits all. And if it's, you know, if you're selling a product or marketing a product into a space, trying to understand and know where it fits um, is every bit as key as the product message, because you're trying to build that connection with somebody and you need to know who your target audience is. That's just, um, to a certain extent, it's the way of doing things. It's also, your point about change reluctance is also very real. There's times when somebody in their career does feel like they can or should be disruptive, and they're, they're trying to get a personal win. I did it at a certain point in my career, and I actually very often have done it every four years, something like that whether it was being an engineer to working in an engineering software company to working at a customer relationship company or business that, you know, sold a certain set of products to, I really want to be involved in the strategy of how that goes to market. I've just pivoted every once in a while. When you're in a place where you're not ready to pivot, then, you know, you're going to get reluctance. Yeah. And not everybody is at those tipping points at any point along the way. There's a lot of times when I'm working with customers and they're like, tell me what other companies like me are doing. And the real disruptors and the ones you can stop and make them think again are the ones who are learning about something that happened from outside their industry entirely, mm -hmm. a different business model, a different approach to something. And it's revolutionary. Yeah, I remember back in the day when I was at Tea Leaf a long time ago and we were first starting, you know, e-commerce was reasonably new. And I went to an event that was a very retail-focused event. And I ran into three or four people the first day I was there who were from banks, person from Wells Fargo, person from Bank of America. I thought it kind of odd. And part of me thought, well, you know, the, the banks, obviously, they're doing financial back-end stuff for the retailers. So maybe that's why they're here. So I was at a reception having drinks and sidled up to one of them and just said, so, you know, why are you even here? And the guy looks at me and goes, we're not good at e-commerce. And this is like 2004, 2005. He goes, we're not good at e-commerce, but retailers are. So we're here to learn from them. Like he goes, I could care less what other banks are doing because none of us are doing it very well. Retailers are way ahead of the curve. That pendulum might've swung a little bit actually since, since that time. But it was really interesting to hear it from him that he was one of those people that you're describing. Yeah, absolutely. There's, it's, there is a pendulum effect. And if you think about touchless, you know, touchless transactions, there's plenty of places where those industries come together. And that's another piece of it. That was another big pivot in my career was, you know, I was working at a company. My company had been bought by a very large software business. And then they bought another customer service company. They bought an e-commerce company. They bought an analytics company. And everybody was still in their lanes. Everybody was thinking, I'm just marketing or I just do contact center software. And I, it just got to a point where I said, you know, I really think we need a role that's going to talk about the entire customer experience. Because that little, that little blurb I gave where you're interested, you're curious, you go to a store, you look at the website, you buy something, it gets shipped, it gets delivered, you try it on. Like that's just typical. 
and it crosses so many different boundaries. I'm still the same person, but it touches so many different lines of businesses within that retailer yeah. or that financial services company. And that kind of storytelling and that kind of transformation really does draw from a lot of different places. I've drawn a, you know, drawn a maturity chart for one line of business, and then you can take almost the same exact thing and apply it to another one. And it's completely revolutionary. They see it in the same lens that they're used to seeing it. You know, it was marketing and now it's service. Yeah. And there's channels for marketing and there's channels for service, but they interpret it with an entirely different point of view. And it means something either very similar or very different, but they make it their own. And what's part of a, sto a good storyteller's job is to be able to make that translation. So pivoting back to where we started at the, the thing that drew me, as I said earlier, into really wanting to share this story with, with the listeners is I've seen the way that you've utilized art and drawing doodling almost. It's like, it's, 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 yeah, I don't even know how you would describe it, but I think that, you know, in times that I hear people talking the way you're talking about how they're going to go in and share a story like that, their first thought is what slides from our slide library, library am I going to right. use followed by, and then what are we going to demo them? Cause that's just the way software sales calls are always happened. And, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm as guilty as anybody. I'm the guy that builds the decks. I'm the guy, yep. you know, and I was the guy that used to build the 40 slide decks. And now I build the five slide decks and say, if you can't say it in five slides, stop saying it. And I'm curious, like, can you help people, you know, explain how you're utilizing things beyond that to help articulate the storytelling? Because people are so visual. They like looking at things. We can, you and I, people are listening to this. If they could see the diagrams and the drawings that you do, it would probably make more sense to them because we're very visual human beings. Wild and crazy idea. I've got my own drawings on LinkedIn. And that's because I started approaching things from a graphical way of, of trying to do just depiction of, of narratives on my own. And I got more interested in it. Um, sure, people have heard of sketch noting and that type of thing before, where it's basically graphical meeting notes or a graphical depiction. Um, again, very, very Googleable. Plenty of books on it I've had recommended to me that I just found a way of being able to take ideas and concepts and then relate them, draw them around each other. And what happened was traveled an awful lot. I'm sure, you know, you did the same thing is I, when I first got my first iPad, looking at somebody else while I was stuck on a tarmac, they were flipping through something on an iPad. I'm like, I could do a lot in my spare time with that. I could do a lot while I'm sitting on an airplane. I could do a lot while I'm between meetings. And then I, I want to use an iPad differently. So I did it and I started drawing. I learned more about sketch noting. I learned more about diagramming. And I started thinking about that. And I started experimenting. I started doing internal meetings with content that I'd drawn. And you know, when you lay out a 40 slide deck, you do it with an outline. You start, you should start with an outline first. The worst things that you see is when you go to a meeting and it's like, what should we tell the customer? I've got this deck and I threw all these great slides in it and it's 167 slides long and you just, you know, your mind explodes, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. What's the story we're going to tell? Yeah. Let's start it out. Let me draw it out for you. Let's build an outline. 
and let's fill it in with the right content. Mac OS and iOS lets you mirror an iPad onto a, or just even use Zoom or something like that natively, mirror it on your laptop. And there's there's great drawing apps that you can use to to sketch things real time and have a, a co-creation session. And I really started doing that internally at my job to draw concepts together. I would show something th to somebody, walk them through a narrative. I got to the point where I did complete presentations with it. And it's actually really funny if you want to bring these two together. In my mind, one of the handful of best meetings I ever had was the interview for the job that I have today. And the process for it was went really quick, was happened to have the right connection, who knew the right person who was hiring, like everything came together really quick. I didn't really necessarily have time to build a, you know, a complete presentation from scratch to interview for this job. So I took a, I just took a major swing for the fences and I pulled together a bunch of mostly drawings from a little bit of work, but a lot from my personal blog that just said, these are the kinds of things I value as a people or as a, you know, as a person this is what my message is to people. These are how I work with other people and did my interview from that. And it just, you know, if, if for people who are watching, I've got a, a whiteboard behind me with some sketches and drawings and either doodles or graphs on it. And it just stops meetings, right? At the start sometimes when you talk to somebody new and they say, what is behind you? It's a way to build immediate interest. Yeah, I think it, it, you know, there's there's a couple things that jump out at me with it, and I'll try to be concise about it. So one is, you know, I'm that classical marketing guy that used to really care about how things looked. It was like brand mattered, mm -hmm. and the way we present right. ourselves mattered, and we got to have the right slide template. And I've evolved, and I still those things still matter to me, but they don't matter the way they used to because I think all of that. It doesn't, none of that matters if you don't have the right story and the right message, right? That's just, that's just putting lipstick on a chicken if you have the right, you know, or lipstick on a pig if you have the right, don't have the right content. Um, but what's really interesting, I think the thing that jumped out at me is about it being a leap, a greater leap is, and for those who can see on the whiteboard behind Eric or the blackboard behind Eric, that, you know, you're not, you, while you've spent time crafting how you want to communicate, it's not like you're sitting down and going, I'm going to create precise, graphically perfect images. I'm going to illustrate a concept for you, and I'm going to illustrate a concept for you. I'm not an illustrator, but I'm going to use this mechanism to do that. And, you know, it's much like when I started the podcast. As you know, I ideated for on it for a long time, and I couldn't get out of my head that it has to be perfectly produced because the ones I listen to are perfectly produced. And then I stepped back and said, okay, there's four and a half million podcasts in the world. And like 50 of them are probably perfectly produced. And the other four and a half, you know, zillion are done by someone like me. And it doesn't have to be perfectly edited. It doesn't have to have perfect sound mixing. It has to be compelling content. And if that is compelling, people don't really care about the other stuff quite as much. And I think there's a shift in general. You know, there was this idea of user-generated content. It's a kind of user-generated content where, you know, you're telling a compelling story and probably very much differentiating yourself in these meetings with prospects 
because no one else is doing that. Everybody else is walking in with their 167 slide deck that they presuppose the narrative and have no flexibility or agility in that meeting to pivot off of the agenda. It's like, I can't show you what's on slide 142 because I have 141 slides I have to get through first to set it up. Right. Yeah, totally. And that's, again, it's it's another way of depicting both a, a framework for a conversation, which you know you could make in a bulleted list, you could sketch down on a piece of paper, you could sketch on an iPad, whatever, you know, use a shared Google Doc, whatever. It's just a different way of depicting it. And when you make that accessible, then it becomes something that people can can step into. It makes it makes the whole conversation more accessible. How often at the conclusion of a meeting does someone say to you, hey, can you send me that stuff? Can you give me the, the content that you just created? Is there a way that I can get access to it? If it's if it's something I'm creating like that, really pretty often. Um, I probably do honestly less of it a little bit than I used to. The company I'm at right now is much more of a pixel perfect branding company. Um, but at the same time, what I've had to do inside the pandemic is do things virtually that are very quick and very engaging because I would do, you know, I would do workshops that had anywhere from 10 to 30 people in the room and facilitating it. And you have to be a little bit more nimble and you have to be a little bit more flexible to be able to capture everything that you would in that kind of environment that would took, you know, maybe took four hours before and nobody does that on online these days. Everything is more condensed and more nimble, but the way that you capture information and do it logically, yeah, people absolutely want it. But at the same time, if they just stepped up to it and said, you've laid all that out for me right now, but I don't know what that means because there's not the investment and there's not the co-creation yeah. or the inception for that matter in yeah. it either, right? I've got to think just to, to pivot off of that, that the even the concept of, I can imagine if you're doing that kind of an inception meeting or an ideation meeting in a room with people where you can read the room, like you know if something's yeah. resonating and something's not, Zoom isn't conducive to that necessarily. It's really difficult to actually read the room and to get people's attention. That had to be a bit of a shift too in terms of how you went through that process in terms of, is this resonating or am I just sitting here you know, doodling in the wind, literally? Literally. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. And it's a co-creation is really the name of the game when it comes to doing these kinds of Zoom meetings. You can, again, for the people who are listening, you can tell where I'll pause or Jeff will pause and then we'll pivot the conversation back and forth between each other. You have to be able to take a pause and, you know, not put somebody on the spot, but say, what do you think about this? Tell me more. Tell me more about, does this idea work for you? Or do, you, do we need to go in a different direction? And if it works, great. What's the next thing that's, that's on your mind? And if you're doing that with a, with a large, dense deck where you have, to, you have to get from way at the bottom to way at the top in order to be able to build a story, if they say no or you need to shortcut it and you're more focused on how to give that presentation and build that narrative and it's inflexible, then it's going to stand a much greater chance of falling flat. Yeah. I mean, I've told people, you know, I, in years and years and years of helping to train and equip and enable salespeople and, and other people, 
even if someone has a 167 slide deck, which if somebody told me I was going to a meeting and they were bringing a 167 slide deck, I'd probably murder them before the meeting and I'd been in prison <laughs> a long time ago. But that's a whole separate discussion. Um, but you know, even if it's a 25 slide deck, my guidance to people all the time was don't learn the slides, learn the content. Like what's each slide, each drawing that you do, if you do a drawing, there's a concept behind it. You're trying to tell a story or a component of a story. What's the component of the story? And does it have to be sequentially told? And if you learn all those pieces of material and you're in the room giving the meeting and the projector breaks or Zoom goes down or your, you know, your laptop frizzles out, can you still tell the story without having to say, oh, and now I need to go to the next slide? And if you can, then, you know, to me, that's the ultimate, you know, just like learn the content, learn the concepts and be able to craft them together, which I think is an area that a lot of people who even really good presenters struggle to get their arms around. They think in a very sequential fashion and they think in a very, you know, slide as guidepost as opposed to slide as like, I never talk to the slide. I talk about the concepts of the slide. The slide's up there. Everybody can read the slide. Like, I don't need to read the three yeah. bullets on a slide. You can read that. And if you can't read them, I'll read them to you. But, you know, it's, it's just. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting. My my boss has got a concept of as simple as it needs to be, which I just I just love. There's the point of proving yourself enough credential yourself and you can pretty often tell if you're savvy when there's depth behind what somebody is saying or if it's buzzword bingo yeah there's sometimes when you just know all right you're going to check these seven acronyms off whatever again whatever line of business is or whatever buzzword it is and if you're talking to somebody like that then there's nothing there and you can just tell it. And it's really, you can tell when there's depth. Again, I'll, I'll go back maybe to another meeting, but was facilitating this account planning session, did one in the morning, 20 plus people there, was um, big whiteboard. I'm leading the meeting. I hadn't been at the company all that long and you know, didn't know everybody, right? It's very clear. We're doing introductions and the lady across the table from me gives her position, right? She's, you know, I'm Tiffany Bova and, you know, this is my title. And it was like, I don't mean any disrespect, but I don't know what that means. And I got the sense that I don't know what that means for a very deliberate reason. Can you tell me a little bit more? And, you know, she's a brilliant person and it was, you know, she's got a basically kind of a visionary at large position in my company. And it's very much a position where you can tell when you have that presence and you talk to her, you know, it's a three or four word title, but it's not a buzzword title. Yeah. It's, you know, mine says director on or senior director. It's like, you're there to be a thinker and you don't need a credential past that. Let's go ahead and move with the assumption that we're both smart people into a conversation and be able to go where you need to from there. And that doesn't necessarily always require vast amounts of content. Yeah. It requires enough to be able to both sit on either side of a screen for. So you you mentioned your blog, which I've obviously been reading for years and years and years now. And I think it's where I first was exposed to your to your art and and the and the writings. And just recently 
you blogged, I think it was last week, maybe just some of the things that are going on with anti-Semitism, just in general, the way the way people are treating. And I kind of want to pivot to there. It's different from the business discussion. But you know, for, for those listening who, who aren't aware, I am Jewish. Eric is Jewish. I would say that Eric is more Jewish than I am because I joke all the time that the level of my Judaism was, you know, my my mom made a ham on Easter Sunday. I mentioned, you know, values up front, um, building trust. And I think that those are those are challenging concepts right now when it comes to tribalism, because I've personally seen, you know, there's lines. It feels like there's lines that shouldn't be crossed. And it feels like each time one gets tested and it gets slipped past a little bit, then we've got a problem, right? And it gets from something that seemed really far out there to something that you see every day. You know, I still go back, maybe maybe a good example is, um, you know, the Charlottesville, you know, Unite the Right rally that led to, you know, started with tiki torches mm-hmm. and chance of you shall not replace us Jews shall not replace us and ended in somebody getting you know plowing their car into a crowd you know which was extremely tragic and the explanation of good people on both sides never really it didn't sit well with me then and I understand that there's people who were who were there for different reasons I get that there's people who were see something going on and the idea that, you know, sure, people carrying a torch shouting juice shall not replace us, that's bad. But somebody who's defending a statue of a Civil War general who fought to preserve slavery, that's not necessarily a good thing either, right? Right. right. And those two, those two ideas are very tight. They're tight together. And if you look back, again, without doing a bunch of other research and background I'm going to talk about here. Isabel Wilkerson's cast talks about the Nazis learning from America, how blacks were treated in slavery to set the stage for what they could or couldn't get away with at a global scale when it came to world war II. And now we've got Tucker Carlson talking about replacement theory and saying F the ADL or the anti-defamation league, who is Jewish, primarily Jewish, led anti-hate organization and it's the same language it's the same people are out to replace you and replace your vote the we are america they are not america and that it's very dangerous yeah i've had a uh, i completely agree i've had a uh, an interesting experience this week um won't call anybody buddy out or call anybody out by name but i have a f- former co-worker. We worked together a long time ago for an Israeli company. He's Israeli. He lives in Israel. We're friends on social media. Haven't been in the same room with him in 20 plus years. So throughout the pandemic, you know, I've, I've stepped back dramatically from my social media. I use social media to, to promote this podcast really and post pictures of my dogs once in a while, my grandkids. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really engaging much. I'm trying not to because it's just toxic for me. Um, so Interestingly enough, the other day I'm on Twitter, where I follow him on Twitter, because Twitter somehow in my mind isn't as toxic as other channels, which is just insane to think about now that I, now that I'm thinking it through. Right. But um, he posted something the other day on Twitter 
essentially saying, good for you, Joe Rogan. Don't let Neil Young cancel you. And so I reached, I reached out to him on Twitter and we went back and forth and it, it was fine. It was a good discourse. It wasn't anything nasty or anything, but his perspective, he, he was echoing these terms that have been completely misappropriated, like the woke mob, which is a term that's been completely misappropriated from black culture and has now turned that around to the woke mob is trying to cancel Joe Rogan. And I said, well, you know, it's not the woke mob. I said, what people are complaining about, what Neil Young is complaining about is Rogan has been consistent with giving a platform to people who have been sharing COVID misinformation. And he, of course, came back and said, but he's given a platform to people who aren't sharing COVID misinformation. And I said, well, but there's not degrees of this. It's kind of the same thing you were just saying about there. There were people at that rally who were not there chanting, but it's not an equivalency. And we were going, we went back and forth. I said, actually, you know, in my opinion, Neil Young wasn't doing anything cancel culture wise. Neil Young did a business negotiation. He went back to a business supplier and said, hey, I don't agree with your business practices. So I don't want to do business with you anymore. And it's either me or him. And they said, well, we pay him $100 million and you, he's more important to us for what we want to do than, than you are. So we're going to choose him. And Neil Young said, fine, I'll take my business elsewhere. And I think that 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 happens every day in business negotiations. But as we were going back and forth on it, it was amazing to me the level of tribalism that I saw in the conversation from someone who's not in the US because that hadn't hmm. been there in these conversations for me before. And it's scary because I'm seeing this from somebody, you know, when I start to see that level of tribalism that we've had here, which is bothersome, now going out across other borders, and not to say that Israel hasn't always been a very tribal place, but it was this particular example. And it was just, um, it was just the far right playbook. It was false equivalencies. It was um, all those things that just scare me from a, it, you know, from a, where we're going standpoint. You know, I hated the discourse. It was like, at the end of it, I'm like, I can't believe I did it. I took the bait to engage in something. I should have just let it go. It was no skin off my nose that I saw him post. You know, I could I could have just shrugged and said, yeah, so Neil Young can't get whatever. I'm going to move on my own. I couldn't let it go for whatever reason. And of course, got into a toxic conversation, but. Trying to avoid toxic conversations, which can be difficult. One of the harder things I think I've found is finding good honest, open conversations. The Joe Rogan one's really interesting. Actually, over lunch, I read uh, read a piece by Roxanne Gay in the New York Times. She took her podcast off of uh, Spotify. I'm a Spotify customer. Mm -hmm. And it was just an interesting question of, is it censorship or is it curation? And who do you want to do business with? I don't, I don't, Nobody really thought that Spotify was going to take down Joe Rogan, who has got a rumored $100 million deal over however many people they vary to the detail know of overlap of audiences, even, you know, how many people are listening to Neil Young or to Joni Mitchell. It's a question of, to a certain extent, support and also honesty of conversation. And do you want to, do you want to support it? I don't pretend that me... You know, and I'm in this debate now with my with my kids because we've been on Spotify for years. Like, it's not going to make any difference to Spotify whether we stay or go. Yeah, I'm still going to listen to Brene Brown, who's yeah. exclusive there too, and stop publishing for a little while. 
I wonder what the, the equivalency is. I wonder how that bounces up against my personal values. And do I think that Spotify's answer of, I'm going to put a warning label for content on anything that discusses COVID is sufficient because to me, it feels like a cop-out because I could have person X interviewing person Y and it being neither one of them is experts and neither one of them is having a good conversation that is based on data or personal experience of physicians. Or could I listen to, you know, Andy Slavitt, who used to be response team, I'm missing my term there, and also worked on the COVID response team for Biden interviewing a scientist or a government official that's doing things based on fact. Those are not the same thing. Yeah. So it was interesting. Part of the conversation that I got into with my friend over in Israel and conversations, a bad way of framing it, the Twitter discourse we were having, he subscribes to the idea that a Rogan is just critical thinker who likes to bring on lots of different people from lots of different viewpoints and talk to them and learn. Now, I would argue that when you have a platform that has 200 million listeners, which is what it supposedly has, that's dangerous. And so I tried to go back to this friend and say, well, if the person he had on was a Holocaust denier or a neo-Nazi supporter, would you feel the same way? Would you say, yeah, he deserves, you know, Rogan's a critical thinker, so he's going to have a Holocaust denier on and give him an audience to 200 million people, 2 million listeners a month to just share information because he's a critical thinker. I said, you would be outraged if that was the case. And he's like, yeah, I would be outraged. To which I then went back and said, he's had those people on. Rogan has had those people on. And in fact, Spotify themselves, when they signed the contract with him, whitewashed those episodes off of his previous podcast before moving the catalog over to their platform. So they full well know that there's problematic content that can be there. It was just interesting that like when it came, and of course, you know, as we all know, it's in, you know, COVID has become so politicized, but it was interesting that somebody, you know, who directly affected by the Holocaust as we all should be or have been, shouldn't be, but have been, didn't see that there was a connection like that, that, you know, that the plat, there's a responsibility of it, whether it's, I don't think it's censorship. I think it's curation. I, I can have anybody I want on my podcast. I also have common sense to know who I want to give a platform to, even though I have a little tiny platform. And I can't imagine, you know, Rogan has the same ability at exponentially greater ability than I do to do that same thing. Sure. And I, you know, I, I absolutely agree in the, the idea of learning more. There's actually a little sketch behind me that's got a couple things having to do with ideas and the more you're exposed to the more sources you get that are good quality sources then I think that makes your thinking yourself as a person deeper but you have to feed that with the right kind of content it's tricky it can be tough and I think it's even tougher now Gary Kasparov had a tweet and a quote I heard him on a couple podcasts probably back in 2015 2016 that said the the purpose of modern propaganda is the annihilation of truth. Mm -hmm. And particularly with COVID, we have seen that. If I, I'm just going to believe who I want to believe that backs up my, my own thought, my own messaging. In reality, something like a pandemic is not static. The approaches to control it shouldn't be static. It shouldn't be, okay, 
we should lock everything down yeah. until it all goes away or we've all gotten vaccinated we're all free there's it's not a black and white thing it's it's all a shades of it's all shades of gray but if you don't have trust in it then you can't guide yourself in right. your decision when you go through even in this discussion that i was having with my friend well mass guidance has changed yeah because the science has changed we've learned more we didn't know anything in february of 2020 we didn't know anything we're now in february of 2022 we know a lot more the number of vaccines you were going to need or the number of boosters and things has changed. Well, yeah, the virus has evolved. You know, it's amazing to me that just there's this view that polio was a one-time thing. We learned what polio was. We gave a vaccine for it. Everybody got immunized. They got herd immunity and suddenly polio is gone. I don't think most people expected that that was actually what was going to happen here. I think people were hopeful that that might happen here. Honestly, at the start of it, I was really skeptical about the virus or not the, the virus, but about vaccination because God, I'm certainly not an MD and I'm certainly not, you know, a, not a chemist and a biologist, but I've known in the past that it takes years and years for most vaccines to be developed. Polio is, you know, it's obviously not, I mean, maybe it's completely eradicated now, but it took decades at a global scale. A global pandemic is something that's different. And why there was the thought that we would have a vaccine for the coronavirus within 12 months, that didn't make any sense to me. So me I listened more. I found more, more source of information on it. And people were hopeful, hopeful that you would get something with 50% efficacy. And were blown away when some of the vaccines came out that were 90 plus. I remember having conversations in March, April, 2020 with people, maybe even with you, about, you know, that there had never been a successfully deployed vaccine against any coronavirus ever. So what gave us any confidence that there would be one quickly for this one? At that time, I didn't realize that, you know, Moderna had been spending 20 years developing mRNA behind the scenes that was able to be adapted into this, you know, that so, you know, we've all learned. But the shocking part to me has been the inability in, in the one instance that you would want to say, everybody just needs to get in the boat and row the same direction. The inability, and it's because of that dissolution of the truth that you talked about, you know, it goes back to, it goes back before this, but, you know, the biggest example that I think was a pivot point was the day after Trump's inauguration when Kellyanne Conway stood in front of an audience and said alternative facts as the spokesperson of the White House. You know, that, that shifted the narrative from you saying, yeah, we trust the White House to be honest. That was a point that said, you know what? They're not interested in being honest. Honesty doesn't matter. Yeah, agreed. And everything from there becomes a litmus test and it only takes, I don't know, again, I'm trying, I tried not to go there that much with the, with the discussion about vaccines and efficacy, et cetera. But if, if one team's not going to play good faith arguments and you know it, and they're going to do it in your face, then you have a test, right? You have a test of loyalty and a test of, of logic. And are you okay with that? Or are you not? And every time you say, yeah, I'll go ahead and give that a break and I'll sign up for it. And you're not checking that based off of both a gut feel as well as trying to find good quality information as opposed to finding something you agree with, then you slide further away from relying on good faith arguments. And it's, it's difficult. I would love there to be an easy solution. I don't know what it is. I have a couple of questions I've been asking people. I know that you were really excited about the fact that season one, I was asking people to give me their 
their three and out questions of movies, books, and things because you're as well read and well viewed as anybody I know. And I threw you for a wrench by saying I'm not doing that anymore. But we can do that if you want to. Um, <laughs> I can, I can, I can throw, I can throw you that bone and let you have that one. But are there things well, we all have them? So just is there a is there a big regret or a big do over that you wish you could step back and say, oh man, I would do that. I would do that differently. I don't think I have one that's a big life regret that I wished I'd done differently. A good, I don't know, just reading example, you mentioned it, uh, Matthew McConaughey's Green Lights book, which was, I think, out in the last year, just was him thinking about, okay, I ran this hard, I did this thing, and I ran into a brick wall, I learned from it, or I did this, and nobody said no, and it's what I want to do, so I'm going to go ahead and give it a green light. I would say the regrets are not really evaluating what the possibilities are and understanding where to where to take that. I've always been, not always, but through most of my career, I've been an individual contributor. Part of that's because of I've kind of evaluated that. I still haven't moved into a management position in my current role, potentially looking at ways to do that. But also I take what I really like out of leadership and I work it into how I interact with different teams. So I would say your, you know, your regrets are when you really mess something up that's irretrievable and irrecoverable versus learning from it and taking the best information that you've got and really what you like and what you're good at and being able to use that to take into the next set of decisions that you make or the next path that you take. Last question. Who inspires you? Who inspires me? Man, I, my kids inspire me. I'll put it that way. My wife inspires me. My, I look at my kids right now and you know, they're both in college. One of them's about to graduate, just order his cap and gown, which is just wonderful. My younger one is, is, you know, it's funny. He's doing mechanical engineering, which I did. He's at Georgia Tech now where I got my master's degree. My older one is graduating with a computer science degree. That's what my wife had any of this on them at all, but just their way of critically looking at the world and trying to is so far beyond where I was when I was, you know, 20 plus or minus. It just worlds apart. It really gives me, you know, the nice feels, but it gives me, I did some things right in helping to put them on the path that doesn't necessarily agree with me, but that they can find a good way. Yeah. And I believe me, I've messed up doing things with my kids too. I've had conversations where I've looked at it and gone, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm going about this the wrong way and we'll apologize. It's not, there's nothing wrong in apologizing to your kids. If you know, you messed something up and they have something to teach you too. If you think that only your peer set people are that are really good to listen to now, black Jews. Yeah. Find yourself some black Jews on Twitter. Listen to Michael Twitty, listen to some, some rabbis and get their opinion. Yeah. Right. Some of this is obviously historical and what, what Nazis view the world as, but it's also how the Jewish people view the world. Mm -hmm. And when you add race to the mix, that's, that's another angle. Find somebody with intersectionality who can help bridge the gaps because that could be religion. It could be age. It could be race. It could be nationality. Like you were talking about, you know, life is a Venn diagram. How about that for, for a closing remark? There you life go. is a Venn diagram. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Narrative. Your feedback is always welcomed. 
as are your shares and, of course, your reviews. Please subscribe and review The Narrative on your podcast platform of choice, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.